This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a terrific Tuesday morning show for you. Super excited about the lineup today, including mobility pricing. It is a tax on drivers, congestion fees, use of road fees. Could Metro Vancouver drivers get walloped with these taxes? Now, I had John Horgan on the show during the election campaign, and I asked him straight up, will drivers get hit with these taxes? Here's what he told me. I want to hear what TransLink has to say, and then uh, we'll go from there. My, okay. I just said to you, it is not a provincial mandate. It's not our intention to impose uh, road pricing. Okay. I, I don't want to override people who are working on something until I got a chance to sit down and talk to them. Oh, man. Okay. It's not in his plan. It's not in his mandate. But you heard what he said there. What about TransLink? What about Metro Mayors? Could they hit drivers with these taxes in Metro Vancouver? We're going to break down that story for you on the show today. So make sure you stick around for that. Also on the show today, this is super interesting. Rapid testing for COVID-19 at airports. This is amazing. A pilot project just approved at the Calgary airport. International travelers could agree to take a COVID-19 rapid test. You test negative for COVID, then you do not have to do the 14-day quarantine anymore. Interesting idea. You know the airlines want this big time. They want to get people traveling and flying again. I want you to think about that for me on the show this morning here, and we'll open up the phone lines on it later. Would you agree to do that? Would you get on a plane again, maybe do some international traveling? If you knew that you would not have to do that 14-day quarantine, would you take a COVID-19 rapid test instead? So that's coming up later on the show as well. But speaking of COVID-19, wow, what an update yesterday from Dr. Bonnie Henry. She announces a surge in COVID-19 cases in British Columbia. Also a new expectation, as she put it, for people to wear face masks in public. Have a listen to this, Dr. Henry, yesterday. Between Friday and Saturday, we had 317 new cases identified in British Columbia. From Saturday to Sunday, an additional 293 new cases. And from Sunday to today, another 207 new people diagnosed with COVID-19. In total for this past weekend, we have had 817 new cases. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry, yesterday with a record spike in COVID cases here. She went on to say how she now says it's an expectation for people to wear face masks in indoor public spaces. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me back, Mike. Okay, you've been really sort of on the cutting edge of this mask issue in Vancouver, and now we get this new spike in COVID-19 cases. When you hear, hear those numbers, 817 new cases over the weekend, what goes through your mind? Well, it, it, what goes through my mind is that it's not a surprise. And, you know, people are saying, oh, Houston, we have a problem. We knew we were going to have a problem. All the signs were there. Um, we knew that our test positivity case was going up. We knew that we're heading into winter. 
Um, and the most important thing with COVID-19 uh, in terms of responding to it has been to be ahead of the curve. And now I feel that uh, because City Council decided not to impose a mandatory mask mandate, now I feel that we're actually behind the curve. Okay, Doc, speaking of masks, I want to get into that with you because Dr. Henry yesterday talked about wearing masks in public spaces, and here is what she said yesterday on that, Dr. Bonnie Henry. It is now the expectation that people will wear a non-medical mask in public spaces. It's not an order because this is something that I know we support as part of our uh, mutual responsibilities to protect ourselves and to protect each other. My expectation around masks as we're going into this respiratory season and we know that COVID is still with us is that we will all be wearing masks in public spaces. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday saying it's an expectation for people to mask up. It is not a public health order. My guest, Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Councillor, you had advocated for mandatory masks in, in indoor municipal spaces in Vancouver, right? Where are we at with that? I did. I did advocate for it. We had the motion at City Council last week. Um, it was on the table. It was exactly what Dr. Bonnie Henry is suggesting. And I agree with her that um, masks be an expectation. And we have them in civic facilities. So I think libraries, community centers, places where people are exposed to the public or staff are exposed to the public, exactly as she's saying. Um, and that was on the table for implementation. And Councillor Christine Boyle brought a strike and replace motion to say that we do not have a mandatory mask policy like TransLink, that we just encourage people to wear masks. Right. Okay. So that is that and that uh, strike and replace motion passed in a six to four vote. Okay. So now we have encouraging mask use. Do you think it should be tougher? Do you think there should be a mandatory order to mask up? Yeah, I absolutely think it should be tougher. I think it it needs to become part of people's normal behavior in a social contract. Um, And I think that the TransLink model is a really good one to follow. They called it a mandatory mask policy. They had really strong communication around it um, leading up to the implementation date, and they saw really strong compliance. So just like we're used to physical distancing now, I think we need to make mask wearing just part of people's daily lives. Okay, we saw Vancouver's public health officer issue kind of a, a dissenting opinion on it, saying that a mandatory mask rule would perhaps marginalize vulnerable people, maybe some people who can't afford a mask or they won't go in to public spaces where they need to get help if they're a part of a vulnerable population. I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, is that a, that's a, I think that's a barrier we can get beyond, can't we? Well, of course we can get beyond it. The yeah. motion actually, I think, you know, spoke to that directly and by requiring that we would make masks available in our civic facilities for people that didn't have them or people that could not afford them. So there was no equity issue and nobody was left behind. I also think it's important to note there's dissenting public medical opinion because Dr. Victoria Lee, who is the CEO of Fraser Health, came out fully in support of Delta's mask policy, and Delta Council voted unanimously to implement one, as did Richmond. Okay, yeah, it's interesting to see other municipalities in the region going in in different directions. So we got Delta and we have Richmond. What are the rules there? Uh, Exactly what we're talking about, mandatory mask policy in all civic facilities with exceptions for kids under five um, or persons with underlying medical conditions. And then if you're doing strenuous exercise, so you're on the treadmill, you can take it off during that strenuous exercise, but you put it back on when you're in the rest of the facility. Okay. It was interesting to hear Dr. Henry say yesterday that mask wearing in indoor public spaces is now an expectation that she has for BC, but not an order. And I know that I think there's some sensitivity around an order that could 
marginalize people or make people targets if they're unable to wear a mask for medical reasons. And, and she repeated that again yesterday. There are some people who can't wear a mask for, for medical reasons. Is that, I don't know, is that a valid reason to not bring in a, a stricter order? I don't think so. I think, again, it's part of education. The people had to understand the idea of physical distancing. And, you know, we're pretty down with that now. People learned it. Um, and I, I think that you have to consider what is best for the health of the majority um, and not simply a few people that can't wear them. And so I think with strong education and clarity around that, that's the approach you have to take as opposed to not doing it and knowing that you could protect people. Think of all the uh, seniors and the other folks who are just honestly, I've spoken to them, are, are afraid to go out now. They're not going to go to the library because they don't feel protected. They're not going to get out of the house. They're going to suffer greater isolation. So I think we have to think about the unintended consequences too right. of people like that. Okay. Do you intend to keep pushing for the mandatory mask rule in Vancouver? I, yeah, absolutely. I would love to see it. The only way that this can come forward um, at council now, uh, because the motion was changed, said only if there is an order, would they make mask mandatory? Is that one of the six councillors who voted against it could ask for it to be reconsidered? So that could be Councillor Boyle or the Green councillors who all, or Councillor Bly who all voted against it. Interesting, Councillor. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure. Uh, all right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about rapid testing for COVID-19 at Canadian airports. Now, could this replace the current 14-day quarantine for international travelers? The airlines want this system. They want people flying again. They want people traveling again. Bring in a rapid testing system for COVID-19 for returning international travelers. Have a listen to this now. Here's Global News reporter Redmond Shannon explaining how it would work. Starting November 2nd, people arriving into Alberta from abroad can voluntarily take a COVID-19 test at Calgary Airport or the main U.S. land crossing. They must then proceed into a 14-day quarantine as before. If the test comes back negative, they can leave quarantine. However, they must provide a second test on day 6 or 7 and must not visit high-risk settings in that two weeks. All right, so this is a test program, pilot program they've approved at the Calgary International Airport. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney likes it. We cannot turn our back on the travel industry, the tourism industry, and the Albertans whose lives have been thrown into upheaval as a result of the pandemic. Okay, and here's Ed Sims, the president of WestJet. It's not an overstatement to say that today's announcement is actually the first piece of good news we have received as an airline since February the 29th when I sat on a Sunday afternoon watching our bookings get outstripped by cancellations. Okay, think about it now. Would you do this? Would you travel again? Would you get on a plane if you know you can get a rapid test for COVID-19? Let's talk about this now with my guest, Brian Passifume, Toronto Sun reporter. He's done a great job in this story. Brian, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, good morning. Okay, so this is really interesting what's going on at the Calgary airport. The airlines really want this, right? And also the unions at the airlines are pushing for it as, uh, too, correct? Yeah, the, uh, the 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 pilot union for Sunwing has been uh, sort of instrumental in in getting this done. They've uh, they put a lot of pressure on the uh, on the federal governments and uh, even even local uh, MPs and just to get this program out there because, as you said, there you know the airline industry is, is probably one of the hardest hit industries through this pandemic. Their their bookings just plunged to zero when people stopped flying. Um, so while while they're looking at this as a great first step, they're kind of wondering, you know, what's going to happen next? Is this going to be just a one and done, or is this going to be spread to other airports? 
And that's a question I've been... Go ahead. Sorry. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how how it would work, Brian. So let's say you're on a returning international flight. Would you get your COVID test as soon as you land at the airport? Is that how it works? Yeah, that's correct. It's only for people whose final destination is Alberta. So people like transferring through Alberta to, say, Vancouver on a local flight. They would not be eligible. It's only for people who end up in Alberta, because what this does, this, is, this pilot program does not replace the 14-day quarantine. What it does is you, you, get, the, uh, you get the test prior to customs. Um, within about 24 hours to 48 hours, you get the results. And from there, as long as you promise to take another test within about seven days, you're able to forego the rest of your quarantine. And, and, that, right. and that's a program that, so that, you know, it works good in theory, but at the same time, you know, they're only testing international passengers. What about the domestic passengers that are coming in from other parts of the world or other parts of Canada and spreading it elsewhere. So this program is a good first step, but you know, a lot of people are, are, are wanting to go further. Right. Now, it's an interesting idea. So it would take, they call it a rapid test, but it would still take 24, 48 hours, maybe? That's, yeah, that's correct. This isn't the, this isn't kind of the, you know, the test is like a pregnancy test where you just kind of like put a sample on a little cartridge and it gives you a plus or a minus. This is, it's still a, you know, a nasal, nasal swab, but it's a lot quicker and a lot more efficient than kind of the current tests that are being done now uh, with health systems across right. Canada. Right. Speaking of Toronto Sun reporter, Brian Passifume. So let's, so it almost sounds like it would, if you, if you test negative, let's say you get your test result 48 hours later, you're negative. You have to quarantine before you get the test result, right? So I guess maybe you'd quarantine for two days, you test negative, and then you don't have to quarantine anymore. Correct. That's correct. You still have yeah. to have a you still have to have a plan to quarantine because if you test positive, then you're still in the same boat as before. Yeah. But you still have to have a plan to be able to quarantine within Alberta. Right, and then you have to take a follow up test. What about a week later? Yeah, but six or seven days later, just to right. uh, you know, just the way the virus works, sometimes you're asymptomatic. And you don't test positive for a couple of days. It depends on the incubation period. Okay, you could hear the the excitement in the voice of Ed Sims there, the WestJet CEO, saying this is good news. You mentioned how the pilots' union at Sunwing want this. I mean, they want people. They're excited because they want. They think that this will encourage people to travel again, right? Get on a plane again. Exactly, and that's yeah. and that's what they want. They want people to. You know, they want butts back in seats. They want. Uh, right. They want people to keep traveling and living their lives again. Right. How come it's just being rolled out in Calgary? How come not other airports in Canada? Uh, it's, a, it's a very good question, and it's a question that I, I, I've so far been unable to uh, get an answer for because, you know, I, I kind of learned about this a few weeks ago, and I've been working sort of trying to figure out what was going on. And, uh, you know, initially the talk was it was going to be rolled out in Toronto because naturally mm-hmm. Toronto is Canada's busiest airport. But it kind of took everybody by surprise that it was just Calgary. I don't know if it's because it's just a, a smaller sample area for just a pilot program or whatever but you know i've been i I rarely get a lot of emails from readers but readers have been deluging me with questions about you know i'm in you know i'm I'm planning to go here i'm I'm living overseas and i want to come home for christmas is this going to be available in toronto by the time i get home and you know my answer to them is you know there is no answer you know there's no plans to roll this out until after this pilot program is done probably early next year yeah, sure. I bet there's a lot of people in British Columbia and Vancouver, I'm sure, would have keen interest in this as, as well. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a lot of COVID at, at airports? I mean, have there been a lot of documented COVID positive cases coming into inter- on international flights? Well, Health Canada keeps record of all incoming flights with, um, 
with infected passengers on on their website and yeah it's you know they they do they they do list that and it is kind of interesting to note that you know when when I wrote this article um Calgary had three reported um international flights coming in with cases during the time period but they had four domestic flights and I've written about this before about how Toronto was kind of the hub of domestic spread of covid through flights and which is why I think that uh, you know the next step should possibly be you know, testing people as they travel domestically before they right. depart, just to, you know, just to keep the kind of keep the spread within, you know, within one region without spreading right. it elsewhere. Right. You mentioned that the pilots union at Sunwing was lobbying heavily for this rapid testing system. I guess it's easy to understand why they're trying to preserve their jobs, I guess. Uh, mm. Tell me about the, the protests. They're staging some protests at airports because they want this this program expanded. Is that right? Yeah, for the next three Fridays, they're going to be uh, staging protests. This Friday is going to be in Toronto. Uh, next Friday is going to be in Vancouver. And the Friday after that will be in Montreal. And they're going to be marching on the terminal just to, you know, just to get their message out there that uh, not only is it time for the government to support the airlines financially, and but it's also to roll out this program everywhere just to make sure that uh, not only the passengers are safe, but the air crews as well, because they're the ones who are kind of on the sort of the, the ground zero of this flight, you know, they're putting themselves at risk every time they, they go to the air just to earn money for the family. So, you know, they want to make sure that uh, they're protected as well. Brian, good job on the story. Thank you for coming on today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. All right. Welcome back to the show. What is QAnon? This is a question I think a lot of people are asking. We hear more and more about this conspiracy theory movement started out as kind of a fringe movement among supporters for U.S. President Donald Trump, kind of in the shadier corners of the Internet. Going mainstream in a lot of ways, though, now the QAnon conspiracy theory is on the rise. Social media platforms like Facebook have taken action against QAnon. Twitter has removed thousands of QAnon-linked accounts. The FBI has warned that QAnon poses a growing domestic terror threat. It's not only in the United States, QAnon getting more popular in Canada as well. So what is QAnon? Have a listen to this report here from NBC News. At Trump rallies nationwide, the Q pops up in a sea of campaign signs. It stands for QAnon and a long list of false, outlandish, and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that big-name Democrats, celebrities, and the mega-rich are child-trafficking pedophiles who kill children and drink their blood in a satanic ritual. Joe Biden himself a frequent target. All of it, they say, exposed in coded messages by someone deep inside the government named Q. Do you believe there's a ring of high-profile politicians who are kidnapping and sacrificing children? I do believe that. 
Who's behind QAnon? The digital evidence shows Q's website is hosted by a pig farmer in the Philippines who owns racist and pornographic websites. NBC News investigative reporter Brandy Zadrozny says the movement exploded with millions of members when the pandemic hit, upending lives and livelihoods. QAnon movement and the QAnon membership has grown probably tenfold since March. So we're talking thousands of groups, millions of members, and it's global now as well. All right. That report from NBC News reporter Tom Costello. Okay, QAnon. You see it at the Trump rallies. We've seen it at some of the rallies, uh, the anti-mask rallies in Vancouver recently, too, with people waving QAnon banners. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Joseph Yuzinski. He's an associate professor of political science at the University of Miami. He's co-author of the book, American conspiracy theories. He's one of the leading experts on this. I'm really pleased to welcome him to the show. Professor Yuzinski, thanks a lot for coming on. You're very welcome. Okay, QAnon. This is something that a lot of people had never heard of just maybe a few months ago, but a lot of people have heard about it now. They're wondering what it is. How did this whole thing get started? So it started in late 2017 with an anonymous person or persons posting on the message board 4chan Uh, claiming to have insider knowledge of a battle between President Trump and the uh, deep state. And this person claimed that uh, Hillary Clinton was going to be arrested uh, for her sex trafficking crimes and that eventually President Trump would win his battle over these satanic deep state agents, uh, send them all packing down to Guantanamo Bay, where they would be tried in secret military tribunals and then hung for their crimes against humanity. Right. And we continue to see these posts, or or I guess they're called drops by people who mm-hmm. follow the QAnon theory. So whoever this Q person is continues to put out these kind of, what, cryptic kind of clues and hints? So Q claims to be a high-level official working within the Trump administration to help President Trump battle the deep state. And this person puts out little clues, which are sometimes called breadcrumbs or Q drops, uh, which are coded messages. And the followers of QAnon then go and try to decode these messages to see what they might mean. Right. Okay. The the deep state, this is something we hear a lot about now, too. How do you define that? What is the deep state? Um, well, I could define it, but everybody sort of defines it differently. It's the idea that there is a uh, malevolent group uh, embedded within our government who is actively working against our democracy in some way. Uh, so you can imagine as presidents come and go, the deep state is the one that stays, but they really control things. Okay, sounds really wild and crazy. And a lot of people have heard uh, this, and this was mentioned in the NBC report, that I guess this conspiracy about pedophilia and child trafficking among powerful elites in, in the democratic power system, you know, what is that about? Is that like mainstream to the beliefs of, of QAnon followers, or is, it, is, sort of, is that sort of fringe of the fringe stuff? Well, the unfortunate news here is that uh, these ideas are quite prominent, and they exist far outside of QAnon and long predate QAnon. So I've just been polling uh, the United States uh, for the last few weeks, and we found that uh, Americans are are quite... 
they overestimate the amount of sex trafficking in the sex trafficking in this country by quite a bit. So with, you know, we asked a question where we asked, you know, what do you think the number of children being trafficked in the country is? And and half the country is putting the number at more than 300,000 children, which is a vast, vast, vast overestimation. I mean, sex trafficking exists, but the number is, you know, far, far smaller than that. So these beliefs, um, that go beyond the available evidence are quite prevalent. And when we ask questions of Americans about elite sex trafficking rings, we get about 30 to 40% who believe that those exist. So some of this is driven by, you know, the Jeffrey Epstein scandal and Harvey Weinstein um, scandals, I'm sure. But at the same time, you know, there are a lot of uh, government reports that come out. Uh, there are statements made by politicians that sort of overestimate and mislead people about yeah. uh, the sex trafficking problem in this country. And one of the things that happens quite a bit is that they often confuse, you know, regular prostitution with trafficking. All right. Speaking to Professor Joseph Yazinski, University of Miami, he's an expert on conspiracy theories, co-author of the book American Conspiracy Theories, and we're talking about the rise of QAnon. The American election for president, of course, uh, Joseph, just a week from today, and a lot of the QAnon devotees, of course, supporters of President Trump. How significant a factor do you think is, is this QAnon movement or phenomenon in the potential outcome of this election? Like, is it a major factor? No, it's not at all. And I will forgive you for getting a few things wrong about QAnon in your introduction, but it's a very small group, and it's not getting bigger. Um, The headlines are all reporting such, but they don't really have any evidence to back up those claims. Um, I've been polling on QAnon support for more than two years now and find that the group is fairly small and its size is very very stable so that's very good news okay um and i'm happy to report that i'll also say too that you know a lot of the talk about QAnon says that it's a far-right group Mm. well there's nothing really far right about it these people aren't talking about tax policy or things like that they don't have regular conservative political values instead what these people share is an intense hatred and alienation uh, from the political establishment. And it's not just that they want to uh, lock up and have executed Democrats. They don't like a lot of Republicans either. Like they, they just don't like the political establishment writ large, regardless of party. So they've, they've latched on to president Trump as, as a hero in some ways, because he's an outsider. Um, but for the most part, uh, you know, this group is so small, it will have very little influence on the election. And um, uh, what polls show is that a lot of them are probably going to vote for Biden, too. So it's, it's not clearly one way or another. OK, I think those are really great points that you mentioned about the the, the small scale of this and that there, there's no evidence that it's growing. So I, I think that's actually reassuring to hear in, in many ways. Uh, do you think, though, that I guess in the old days, around conspiracy theories whether it was i don't know jfk or the or the moon landing that if you were a hardcore believer in conspiracy theory you'd have to work pretty darn hard to get information now in the internet age 
does the internet and websites, encrypted websites like 4chan that you mentioned, does that aid in the dissemination of, of, of these type of beliefs and spread it more rapidly? Only in the sense that you can access things more easily. But there's some important things going on here. I mean, first of all, it's not clear that people are believing conspiracy theories more now than they ever have in the past. I mean, just to give you one example, I mean, shortly after President Kennedy was assassinated, polls showed that 50% of Americans, 5-0, believed there was a conspiracy. By the mid-70s, that number was up to 80%. I haven't seen a conspiracy theory hit 80% in the post-internet era. So, so this is all to say that these ideas were were easily adoptable prior to the internet. They they could spread um, without any problem. People were able to talk and call each other, and they wrote books and they had TV shows and movies. Right. And um, when you go to the internet, it's not like you log on to Google and all of a sudden you're inundated with conspiracy theories. People choose their own adventure on the internet, and if they're already inclined to believe in conspiracy theories, then they'll seek them out. But if they're not inclined, then they're not going to. So for the most part, what we find is that people buy into the ideas they want to buy into, and anything else they either don't look at or they psychologically filter. All right, welcome back. A few minutes left with my guest, uh, Professor Joseph Yazinski, University of Miami. He's the co-author of the book, American Conspiracy Theories. He's an expert on QAnon and other conspiracy theories. Uh, Professor Yazinski, let me play a couple of Donald Trump clips here for you now. He was The president has been asked about the support he receives from QAnon followers. Here's one thing Trump said. I understand they like me very much. Uh, which I appreciate. Okay, he says he appreciates uh, the QAnon devotees that for liking him. He was also asked about the theory on child trafficking. Here's what Trump said on that. Is that supposed to be a bad thing or a good thing? I mean, you know, if, uh, if I can help save the world from problems, I'm willing to do it. Okay, Professor, what do you think about the way that Trump has handled these questions and his responses there? Um, it's nothing new, uh, but it's bad. I mean, it's not good to have elected leaders trafficking in or uh, apparently giving you know comfort to these <laughs> conspiracy groups. Um, so that's a bad thing. But we knew that before he was elected. I mean, he started his political career talking about President Obama's fake birth certificate. And he spread vaccine conspiracy theories. Um, in fact, the only conspiracy theories President Trump doesn't like are ones that accuse him of doing something. So none of this is good, um, but that's an entirely separate question than um, is the group getting bigger um, or more dangerous or will they have an impact on the election? So, right. so Trump's rhetoric is bad regardless of all those other things. Okay, you mentioned earlier that you know this is, this is a small group that does not appear to be growing, I guess, in, in any great way. But I, I've read about candidates for Congress and some QAnon devotees or have expressed support or sympathy for QAnon running for Congress in the, in the current elections, including some Republicans who very well might get elected to the House of Representatives, like Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene What's uh, in Georgia. What do you think of, of her? She's made comments. She's expected to win, and she's made comments sympathetic to QAnon, right? 
Yeah, so there were about 80 candidates who ran for Congress um, who had some quote-unquote link to QAnon. Some of them were clearly true believers. Um, some of them simply mentioned it. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who you mentioned, is probably going to win. I mean, she disavowed it after she won her primary. Okay. And part of the reason is that career incentives change once it looks like you're headed to Washington. Uh, so running around being a, a, a QAnon supporter in the halls of Congress probably wasn't going to help her in any way. And the other one, Lauren Bober, out of Colorado, will likely win. Um, but she didn't really have a very strong link to it in the first place and has dis since disavowed it, too. Now, with both of those candidates, I mean, it's whether they believe QAnon or not, they're still largely the same candidate. And they still engage in a lot of problematic behaviors. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance, you know, many of her campaign ads are her shooting things with guns. Right. So QAnon or not, um, I, don't, I don't think it matters that much. What do you think about the way that some of the major social media platforms ha have handled this? We've seen Facebook take action against QAnon groups and pages, and Twitter has removed uh, QAnon-linked accounts. Uh, do you think they're doing? Do you think they're doing the right thing? And are, and are, the, is, are these moves effective? I mean, in some ways, they are just proving to QAnon believers that there is a conspiracy against right. them. Yeah, right. And it, it, all it does is is uh, convince them that the social media companies are now in on it too. Yeah. So it, uh, I'm not convinced that it's going to change any minds. And and again, for two years, this conspiracy theory has been around. With, when it was able to travel frequently and easily through social media networks, it didn't pick up a lot of new believers. So banning it probably isn't going to do anything um, to stymie it either. Right. Uh, so it, it's not clear that okay. someone just slips on a banana peel, falls into a Facebook page, and becomes a QAnon believer. Okay. That's just not how it works. They already have to have a worldview that's accepting of deep state, satanic pedophiles eating babies. Because if they're not already okay with that idea, there's nothing they're going to see on Facebook that's going to convince them. It's fascinating stuff, and it's been great to have you on the show today to share your expertise. Thank you very much for coming on. You're very welcome. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about mobility pricing now. These are taxes aimed at Metro Vancouver drivers, congestion fees, use of road fees. The money would be used to fund transit and transportation improvements. This idea has been on the drawing board for a long time. When John Horgan was on the show during the election campaign, I asked him straight up, would Metro Vancouver drivers get hit with mobility pricing, these mobility taxes. Here's what he told me. I want to hear what TransLink has to say, and then uh, we'll go from there. My, okay. I just said to you, it is not a provincial mandate. It's not our intention to impose uh, road pricing. Okay. I, I don't want to override people who are working on something until I get a chance to sit down and talk to them. Okay, it's not his intention to impose mobility pricing, but he does not want to override other people who might be considering mobility pricing taking a look right now at the translink website they've got a mobility pricing commission that has been studying this this is up on their website right now they're looking at a regional congestion charge it would cover important regional important crossing sounds like a bridge toll also a distance base charged with two or more zones with varying charge rates throughout 
Metro Vancouver. It's on the TransLink website right now. Both concepts show promising results, requiring more analysis. So they're still thinking about it over there. Meanwhile, check out what's going on here at Vancouver City Hall. The city has a climate emergency action plan with recommendations here that council is going to be looking at next month. Some of the recommended actions include implement transport pricing in the metro core. Hmm, Here's another one. Implement residential parking permits citywide. Residential parking permit. What, I got to pay to park in my own driveway now? This is part of the climate emergency action plan being considered by the city of Vancouver. The purpose of this plan, right in the document, discourage driving. They want people to drive less as part of a climate plan. Okay, let's talk about all this now with my guest. Brad West, he is the mayor of Port Coquitlam. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show. Mayor West, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Mike. Let me get your take, first of all, on, on the, uh, the election campaign just concluded on the weekend. Big majority government there for the NDP. What do you think that means for municipal governments here going forward? Well, it was uh, interesting results, and you know, obviously what you saw was the NDP built their majority in the suburbs, uh, in places like the Tri-Cities, uh, in the Maple Ridges, uh, Mission, uh, Pitt Meadows, out in Langley, and the Fraser, you know, and then extending into the Fraser Valley in areas that they were never successful in before. So it's very much a, a government that uh, is built in the suburbs, and so you know, I, I'm encouraged by that, in that uh, hoping the government will be very much in tune with the concerns of of people who live and work out here. What's what are the uh, priorities for for local government here with the province right now? Well, I think you you look at our part of the region, one of the fastest growing parts of the province, and you have people who are moving out here in droves because of yeah. affordability issues and, and because they're great places to raise a family. And we need to have the, the infrastructure to keep pace with that growth. And, and that means uh, support from senior levels of government to be making investments into the, the infrastructure that uh, w- we need here to uh, accommodate that large volume of people. So I think right. you know, that's going to be a, a big priority for me and I think for other mayors uh, who represent these cities that are, are seeing very large increases in population. Okay, infrastructure and investments, I, we all want to see that, and I think that's crucial. But I guess the question is, how do you pay for it? And that gets back to this mobility pricing idea. Uh, we see TransLink looking at it, City of Vancouver looking at it. What are your thoughts as a suburban mayor, mobility pricing? Well, for me, it's a non-starter, and uh, I'll tell you why. So you had the previous mayor's council uh, set up the Mobility Pricing Commission, and they went in and did some work. They produced a report. That report's been uh, put firmly on a shelf, and it remains there collecting dust. Now, <laughs> will someone take it off that shelf, dust it off, and, and try and you know make a, a go of it? I, I suspect there's some people who have their eyes on on doing that. But you know, here's the challenge. From my perspective, you've got again thousands of people in this region moving to places like Port Coquitlam, Maple Ridge, uh, Langley, uh, the suburbs, right? right? And the idea that you are going to charge those people who have had to move out uh, to the suburbs, you're going to charge them the minute they turn on their vehicle 
uh, you know, to be able to drive to work, to be able to drop their kid off at hockey or soccer, whatever it is. It's just, you know, when there's no other option, what do you think people are getting in their cars because they just love driving? No, they're in their cars because that is the only viable option uh, when you're out in the suburbs and you're very poorly served by transit. Uh, and it's just the reality uh, of of life out here, and so uh, I think it, you know it's really easy if you're sitting in downtown Vancouver to say, yeah, nobody should drive, and we're gonna ding people who do. Um, you know, if we if you lived you know a, a half a block away from where you worked, and you know you had SkyTrain all over the place and buses, then yeah, maybe that's a, an argument you can make, but. Um, you know, people out here don't have the alternatives, and it would just be an absolute uh, unfair cash grab, in my opinion, to try and uh, ding people who, again, for affordability reasons, have increasingly moved out to the suburbs, and then we're going to whack you for that by introducing uh, mobility pricing. So okay, it's where would starter for me? Where would the money? Okay, you made that pretty clear that you'd be off, you'd not be on board with something like this. But where is the money supposed to come from? I mean, there's these massive investments that are required, and a lot of them have been promised for big yeah. transit and transportation improvements, and everybody wants to see these things happen. Where does the money come from, though? I mean, if you don't do mobility pricing, where, do you borrow the money or you, uh, impose some other kind of tax? Well, I think, I think there's a, a combination of things. Um, first and foremost, I think it, it, it's really about priority setting. Um, yeah. People pay a lot of tax already to government at every level, uh, and government needs to be more focused in prioritizing the money that they already have into the things that we need. Uh, so that would be my first comment, and I think that that's a really important piece of this. The answer can't always just be, okay, well, give us more. There has to be some internal process by which we, you know, prioritize what is important to people at this point and ensure that funding goes to those items. Um, but secondly, and this is an area where I, I do think there's an opportunity to, to look at uh, a new revenue stream. When the region's taxpayers invest in uh, rapid transit into an area, what happens to the real estate values in the surrounding areas? They go through the roof. Mm -hmm. And quite often you have uh, individual uh, property developers uh, who make a mitfall because the rest of us have gone and paid to, uh, to have an investment of rapid transit. In many other areas, and I'm not talking about... <laughs> hotbeds of socialism, I'm talking about like areas like Miami in yeah. the United States, there's a way to capture some of that value back to then reinvest into more transit. And so, you know, if we're going to be, uh, you know, the rest of us are going to be paying to do rapid transit, SkyTrain, or uh, I guess a subway underground along Broadway, right. and, and that's going to have a significant windfall impact to the properties around that area, it seems to me that there's some logic that a portion of that windfall would go back into the system so other people can benefit from the so expansion of rapid transit as well. So charge the developers a fee? Well, you know, it call, it's called many different names, yeah. land value capture. Um, but, you know, to me, there's some logic and, and, some in, and a sense of fairness in that. Right. Um, because the reason why those property values 
are skyrocketing and that windfall is taking place is because all of a sudden, this property is next to a SkyTrain station. And it's the rest of the region's taxpayers that have bucked up to make that happen. So should there not be some sharing in that? Um, You know, my sense is there should.